So one of the, one of the materials out on the table back there uh, where I have various booklets and books and, and brochures and prayer booklets is this little brochure, Roe versus Wade Overruled, Understanding the Dobbs Case and our new opportunity to protect the unborn. Relatively small, it's only 12 pages, but I guarantee, read through this, and you will have a better understanding of this Dobbs decision than, uh, than most of uh, your fellow Americans. And it's important that we understand it. You know, many people are saying, now that Roe v. Wade is, is reversed, what does the pro-life movement have to do? Well, I'll tell you what the first thing is we have to do. We have to understand the Dobbs case. We have to understand exactly what it was that the court did, what it didn't do, and how it, how, what kind of path did it open up for us moving forward. Our first responsibility is to absorb this decision, study it, understand it. Only then can we begin to kind of recalibrate our strategies. Because it does affect, and we in the national leadership have been doing this uh, in these months since the Dobbs uh, case with various meetings, some of them regular meetings that we have anyway uh, for strategic planning. But we're still, this is a very unsettled time right now. A bit it's a bit disorienting on both sides of the uh, abortion issue. You know, those in the pro-abortion camp, they're very angry very, very distressed, and they're taking that anger out on the American people, and very often they're aiming it at the wrong targets. Uh, but on our side, too, there's a whole lot of, of disorientation and confusion, and like, what in the world just happened? What happened was big, and we, it's going to take some time to even realize how big of a victory it was. And some of what I'll tell you here today I think will help you uh, to uh, appreciate that. But let me begin this way. We shouldn't be too surprised that Roe v. Wade fell. We should really not be too surprised. A lot of people say, oh, well, you know, I never thought I would see it happen. I didn't think it would happen in my lifetime. I wasn't sure if it would ever happen. Oh, isn't this, you know, miraculous? As if Roe v. Wade were some kind of big, mighty fortress. You know, like, oh, how in the world are we going to take down that big, mighty fortress? It wasn't a big, mighty fortress. It was more like, if you want to use an analogy, a dilapidated building that was falling apart that had partially been dismantled already, that was unoccupied, and that had a shaky and practically non-existent foundation. That's what it was. So the, really, the surprise is, how did it last 49 years? Why was it a dilapidated building and a shaky foundation? Well, first of all, the Roe v. Wade decision itself didn't even have a record. When, it, when a decision goes to the Supreme Court, some of you may have a legal or constitutional background, uh, or you know the court system and how it works, you know, cases have records. And you've got, you know, boxes and boxes of documentation, you've got testimonies, you've got depositions, you've got a record. You've got a whole record of facts, and here's what... R listen, Roe v. Wade didn't have a record. Norma McCorvey, whom I knew personally, I was one of her spiritual guides, she was the Roe. Norma McCorvey of Dallas, Texas, the Roe of Roe v. Wade. I was one of her spiritual guides. I received her into the Catholic Church in 1998. In 1995, she was baptized by my friend, Reverend Flip Benham, and, uh, and then she, she became Catholic. 
And she worked the rest of her life uh, uh, to, 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 until her death just in 2017 to, uh, to reverse Roe v. Wade. She never appeared one day in court. All she did was sign an affidavit that she hardly understood. She didn't even know what abortion was. There was no record. And in fact, if you go back and listen to the oral arguments in Roe and Doe, now Doe was the companion case. They were argued together. They were decided together. The court said they had to be read in the light of each other. So we're really talking about two cases, twin cases. Roe and Doe, you listen to the oral arguments, and the justices are sitting there saying, are there any facts in this case? Are these even real people? Because it was being argued in, in such a, 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 a vague way. Not only that, but the justices of the Supreme Court at that time were under a misimpression about what the case was about. This is how poorly done this whole thing was. They thought initially that this was a case regarding whether federal jurisdiction could intervene in state criminal proceedings. So they thought it was more of a question of jurisdiction rather than of whether there's a substantive right to abortion in our Constitution. And then they come to realize, oh, wait a minute, this is about a much deeper question than we bargained for. Not only that, but then you look at the oral arguments, they didn't even discuss Questions like, let's take just one example. Well, if we legalize abortion, what's the health impact on women? Can you imagine that that question wasn't even discussed in the court? Not only that, but Roe versus Wade had no appellate review. Again, those of you who are familiar with the court, how the court system works, it was challenged initially in the district court, which is the lowest level of federal courts. You got the district courts, you have the circuit courts, which are the appellate courts, and then you have the Supreme Court, right? Usually, I mean, what's gonna happen with a federal case is that it's gonna start at the, in the district, it's gonna get appealed to the circuit court, and then a small percentage, maybe one or two percent, will get heard by the Supreme Court. Roe v. Wade skipped the whole middle part. Now, the appellate review examines the reasoning that the district court used, and it often pokes holes in it, you know, or on the other hand, expands it. There was no appellate review. Roe v. Wade skipped from the district all the way up to the Supreme Court. Not to mention that Norma McCorvey lied about, you know, why she wanted the abortion, and on and on it goes. Viability, viability was a big, big concept here because ever since Roe, for almost 50 years now, because of Roe, and then this was reaffirmed by the Casey decision. See, Dobbs overturned Roe and Casey. Casey was in 1992, so significantly later. Um, and it almost reversed Roe. But in Casey and in Roe, they have this viability standard. And what they're saying is, and this is what prompted the court to take up the Dobbs case, what they've been saying for five decades is, if you try to protect a baby in the womb, before viability, that's unconstitutional. What constitution are you reading? Viability? But, but what in the world are you talking about? There's nothing about that in the constitution. But listen, you want to know why Roe was a dilapidated building? Not only is viability not in the constitution, it wasn't even in the case. Stop and think about this for a moment. The other side, the pro-abortion side, insisted in the arguments in, in the Dobbs case, and they insist to this very day, 
that the line of viability is a constitutionally sound boundary and is principled and it must be upheld and it's an outrage that the court said now you can prohibit abortion before viability. Oh really? Well you know where this viability conversation came from? It wasn't in the laws that Roe and Doe were challenging out of, out of um, Texas and Georgia respectively. It was not in any of the briefs submitted to the court in these cases. It was not mentioned in any of the oral arguments. It was inserted in a memo circulated among the Supreme Court justices one month before the final decision came out in January 1973. What kind of deception has been foisted on the American people these last 50 years? This is absolutely outrageous. Now, we're not the only ones who recognize this. Serious scholars of constitutional law who are pro-choice in their mindset, they agree, in other words, with the conclusion, the legal conclusion that resulted from Roe, nevertheless, over all these years, have strongly criticized the decision itself. They basically said it's garbage. There's no reasoning here. There's no constitutional arguments here. John Hart Eli is one example. Ruth Bader Ginsburg even criticized this. This is not a constitutional argument here. It, the decision is so faulty that when the Casey case in 1992 did reaffirm Roe v. Wade, we thought at that time it was going to reverse Roe. Okay, Barely. It didn't. But in reaffirming it, it did not endorse it's reasoning. I understand what I'm saying. Casey didn't come along and say, you know what, we're standing by Roe because it was, it was such a strong constitutional argument, great history, great medical arguments, we're standing by it. They did no such thing. They did not endorse its history or its arguments at all. And when Roe versus Wade set up the trimester framework where it said to the states, well, you know, you can do certain things in the first trimester of pregnancy to regulate abortion, you can do certain things in the second trimester, you can do certain things in the third trimester, where in the world did all that come from? That framework of guidance was more of a legislative activity than a judicial activity. Right. Courts are not supposed to create policy. They're supposed to judge disputes. You know what Planned Parenthood versus Casey did with the trimester framework? They threw it out the window. They got rid of it. That's why I say the dilapidated building of Roe v. Wade, part of it had already been torn down. They did not endorse the reasoning. They threw out the trimester framework. Now, they introduced another standard, which likewise was completely disconnected from the Constitution, the undue burden standard. But that's too long of a discussion for right now. But the point is that the, the, they're looking at Roe and they're saying, uh, basically, you know, in fact, in the Casey decision, they, they give a pretty strong indication that, well, you know, we don't necessarily endorse Roe v. Wade. Here's the reason why they kept it in force, however. They said, well, you know, it's been around a long time. That was their silly reason for keeping it. Oh, it's been around so long now, I guess, you know, we're stuck with it. 
They even reversed, however, two of the subsequent decisions that relied on Roe and Casey, reversed them in part. In other words, they were showing in their very act of reaffirming Roe how inconsistent and unreliable the decision itself was. This was, a whole, this was such craziness. But that's, that's what we have. Over all these years, the United States, the United States government, no less than five times in the 10 years before the Casey decision, and then in Casey itself, was a friend of the court and, and submitted a brief calling for the reversal of Roe v. Wade. The members of Congress who weighed in now in the Dobbs case, never before in our history did more sitting members of Congress together call for the reversal of Roe than happened in this particular case. Uh, 228 of them signed on to a brief, and then several other members of Congress had their own briefs that were submitted, plus the state legislators, 398 of them signed on to a brief, calling for the reversal of Roe and saying, let us do our job as legislators. Because remember, what the court did in Roe, by saying you can't protect the babies in the womb before viability, they were saying to the lawmakers, sorry, we're taking this out of your hands. Now, some of them were more than happy to let them do that because they said, oh, well, now I can go to my constituents and say, don't blame me for voting pro-abortion because the court took it out of my hands. I, nothing I can do about it. And they were very much right, although they were wrong to use that as an, as an excuse, but they were right. The court did take it out of their hands, and by taking it out of their hands, that is, the elected lawmakers, they took it out of our hands, the people who elect them. Now, we elect those lawmakers. They work for us. We can vote them in. We can vote them out. We can sit in front of them. We can lobby them. We can persuade them. You can't do any of those things with a Supreme Court justice. You can't lobby them. You can't vote them in. You can't vote them out. And that's why they don't face election every two years like the members of Congress do or every however many years your state legislators serve in their terms. They've got to constantly face re-election. The justices don't. Why not? Well, because they're not supposed to set policy. That's why not. That's, it's, it's a simple reason. If they were supposed to do the th things that they do in fact do, well, then they should be facing election every couple of years. And we don't like the direction they're going. We get them the heck out of office like we do with, uh, with lawmakers. Okay, so we shouldn't be so surprised that Roe is gone. Never has any decision been more widely criticized than Roe versus Wade. I'm talking about by federal judges. And, you know, when, when, a, when, a, when a federal judge in an appellate court or a district court is ruling on the issue of abortion, and there have been hundreds of such cases. In fact, even at the Supreme Court level, there have been a couple of dozen cases on abortion since Roe v. Wade. It wasn't just Roe and Casey. It was a couple of dozen decisions. And a lot of them dealt with things like you know, funding of abortion, right? Whether funding, if, if, if abortion is recognized as a constitutional right, does that mean that funding it is constitutionally required? And the court said, no, it doesn't mean that. And that's why we've had and continue to have funding restrictions. Um, and it dealt with other things, just basically revolving around the question of whether or not and to what extent the state can regulate abortion or limit it in some ways, or even prohibit it in some instances, like with the partial birth abortion procedure, which we won a Supreme Court victory on that in 2007, when the court said, yeah, you know, you can, you can ban partial birth abortion because it's particularly brutal. Uh, but the bottom line is that the, uh, 
judges, when they're dealing with abortion, had to observe, and they still have to observe, what's called vertical precedent. You've got to take what the Supreme Court said on the same issue that you're judging now and apply it, whether you like it or not. So they applied it all right, but they didn't necessarily like it, and a lot of them let us know that they didn't like it, because in their decisions applying Roe, they criticized Roe. So we have a great body of, of, uh, of judicial literature. And you know, it's often said, you know, a dissent in a particular case becomes the majority in a, in a subsequent case later down the line. And that has certainly happened. Now, praise God, it's Dobbs that is precedent. And, uh, and, and, and we're going to look at, the, look at the implications of that. So we have a situation here where it's not just a victory for the unborn. It is a victory for our American system of government. Because we now can decide, once again, to what extent the unborn will be protected. Understand what has happened here. The court has taken away a major roadblock. Over all these years, what have we done? Well, we've looked at the science, and we've said, hey, this is a baby. The genetics, the growth. I mean, most people don't know how quickly the baby develops. That while still technically called an embryo, which is up until eight weeks of development, while still an embryo, that baby already has all the major bodily systems that you and I have. And thousands of body parts and organs present and functioning, while still an embryo. The baby's heart at seven weeks has beat about 15 million times. Oh, does the baby have a heartbeat? Oh, I didn't think the baby had a heartbeat until, I don't know, five months. Come on. Why are we living in such scientific ignorance? Well, we know full well exactly how the baby develops. And so many people are just such, so engrossed in ignorance about the science. Well, what have you and I done in this movement? We've paid attention to the science. We've written brochures. We've distributed videos and pictures. And we've persuaded our fellow citizens that these babies are babies and should be protected. What else have we done as a movement? We've argued that abortion is Immoral. I mean, just from ethics, not even from theology. But then in the area of theology, we've shown how it's immoral. And I dealt with some of this earlier in my remarks, right? Jesus is life. He comes to ennoble human life and take it to his throne. The theological arguments reinforce the arguments we know from natural reason. And what else have we done? We've looked, as uh, Cindy and I have been discussing, at the, the damage abortion does to, 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 to women. And they themselves have spoken about it, and to men, and to families. And, 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 the, and, and you can get books this thick, just of bibliographies, of the science and the research that is done into the harmful effects of abortion on women's health, on family health, on intergenerational health, on societal health. What, what am I saying? I'm saying that for all these decades, you and I have argued the pro-life position on its merits. We haven't had to appeal to some kind of judicial authority. We, we've said, no, 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 well, just look at the facts, right? Look at what abortion is. What has the other side done by comparison? It's a constitutional right. You guys have any more arguments than that? 
You guys want to tell us why abortion is a good thing for society? Like I said in my other talk, they won't even tell you what an abortion is. When's the last time somebody that you argued about abortion with told you what it is? What in the world is that? That right there is clear evidence of who's right and who's wrong, of who's proud of where they stand and who's ashamed. They won't even tell you what it is. But they had an easy out. Oh, but it's a constitutional right. The Supreme Court said so. Well, they're absolutely right that the Supreme Court said so. Except now they're in a little bit of trouble. Because the Supreme Court said, when we said so, we were wrong. Now, I want to talk about why they said they were wrong. But I want to talk to you first about what position does that leave the other side in. It leaves them flat-footed. It leaves them like, oh, we better come up with some other reasons why we want legal abortion. They don't have any. It's indefensible. They really, a long time ago, they ran out of arguments. At the beginning, they started to argue based on promises. Oh, well, you know, we legalize abortion, it's going to improve women's health, it's going to decrease women's poverty, it's going, to, it's going to help us in so many ways decrease child abuse. Well, none of the promises they made back there in the 1970s ever came to pass. Everything went in the opposite direction when abortion was unleashed. So they've run out of arguments a long time ago. And they can't hide behind the justices anymore. See, that's what they've been doing. They've been hiding behind the robes of the justices. But now they, they, that, that, that ground has been taken out, out from under them. They're in a bad situation right now. So strategically, what they have been doing instead, and you see this now on the ballot in, uh, you see some efforts on this here in, in Indiana. I know your, your recent pro-life law is being blocked in the courts right now. And what the other side is trying to say is that it goes against some of our constitutional rights. Some of them, the Satanists, as you know, they're trying to say it goes against our religious freedom. You know? Yeah. And, uh, and, and other states, too, they'll bring these court challenges and they'll say, well, it goes against our constitutional provision of privacy. Now we're talking about in the state, the state constitutions, right? And in other states, right now, I just got back from California, I was talking to the pro-lifers out there, and Michigan, where these, got, these states have ballot initiatives, so does Vermont, in this November 8th election, where the pro-abortion people are trying to put into the state constitution a right to abortion. Now, about that. Number one, notice the strategy the other side is using. It's almost like they're forced to do this. They are terrified of the legislative process. So they need to hurry up and put in the state constitutions what is, has just been taken away from them in the federal constitution. Because understand, the way the law works, if something is a constitutional right, you cannot pass a law prohibiting it. Now you can limit it under very, 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 very narrow circumstances, okay, but you can't go very far. Here's their problem with doing this. Here's what's why they're doing it. Because now they can hide behind the robes of the justices. And they don't have to defend abortion on its merits, which there are none. They don't have to persuade their fellow Americans that it's a good thing. They don't have to persuade, therefore, their fellow Americans to elect politicians who believe it's a, it's a, a good or a bad thing. And they don't have to lobby their lawmakers to pass laws which enforce it 
as a good thing. They're taking the lazy way out. Oh, well, it's a constitutional right. Okay. Now, here's their problem with that. That's why they do it. But why is it not going to work? Because of what Dobbs said. And this goes back to the why. Why did they reverse Roe v. Wade? They made some very strong constitutional arguments. But you can boil them all down to three words. When it comes to the question of a constitutional right to abortion. And you know what those three words are? It isn't there. <laughs> it's not in the text of the Constitution. It's not in the history of the Constitution. It's not in the history of any federal or state law. It's not in the history of any federal or state constitutional or court ruling. It's not in any scholarly treatise. It isn't there. You go back to the dawn of American history, you will not find, until the 1970s with Roe v. Wade, you will not find the assertion that there is a constitutional right to abortion in America. It's not there. And that is one of the key arguments, it's the key argument of Dobbs as to why we as a court were wrong when we said that it is there. Really, you can look at the Dobbs case as an act of repentance. The court, these justices, these justices were very courageous and they were very humble. Read the decision. They said we were wrong and we were egregiously wrong. And we as an institution, they of course weren't, you know, on the row court, but it's, it's the same institution. We were wrong and we were grievously wrong. We did damage. Not only the damage that abortion does, we know that. But what they even focus more on in the, in the decision, as, is, is, as makes sense for them to focus on, is that we damaged our American system of government. We twisted it and disfigured it. Because once we declared abortion a constitutional right, everything else was, it's what we call a, the abortion distortion. All the other rules, normal rules of the game, don't apply anymore. Look what it did to the judicial confirmation process, for goodness sake. You know, when Justice Clarence Thomas, let's think back to the early 90s, right? You remember his confirmation process and the accusations and the, the Judiciary Committee at that time was, was headed by a certain Joe Biden. And Clarence Thomas, you know, there's a documentary out about his life. I urge you to take a look at it. It's called Created Equal, right? You, you know it, right? It's amazing. Um, and he says in that documentary, he talks about his confirmation hearing. And you know what he says? He says, those members of the Judiciary Committee were obsessed with one question above all. How would I rule on Roe versus Wade? Well, they found out, didn't they? They found out. But that was their key worry. And then look further at, you know, George W. Bush. When he was reelected in 2004, and we worked hard for that reelection. We, we, all of us, and we at Priests for Life, worked like crazy. It was in that second term of George W. that we got Samuel Alito on the Supreme Court, who authored the Dobbs decision. How many voters in that election, in that presidential race, were motivated by the Supreme Court? By the idea, in other words, that their vote for president would determine not just what the president would do in the next four years, but what the Supreme Court would do in the next 40 years. That's what motivated the voters. And you know when that motivated the voters again? in a certain election that happened in 2016. 
CNN, even CNN and the exit polls of the 2016 election found that a good 20% of the electorate said the number one motivating factor in their vote was the U.S. Supreme Court, that they knew the next president would be replacing some of those justices. And among, those, among that one-fifth of the electorate who said the Supreme Court is issue number one, 56% of them voted for a certain man by the name of Donald J. Trump. And in, remember this, in October of 2016, then candidate Trump was asked this question. Sir, do you want to see Roe versus Wade overturned? Here was his answer to that question, and I quote, if I am able to put two, uh, well, look how he nailed, hit the nail on the head. He said, if I am able to put two or three justices on the Supreme Court, the reversal of Roe versus Wade will happen automatically. That's what he said. Because he knew the kind of justices he would appoint. In fact, he told us who they would be, right? He gave us a list. He said, there's going to be people on this list. That's transparency for you. And he, he knew the type of justices, the type of justices who don't believe in creating a trimester framework or a right to abortion out of thin air where it is nowhere in the text, structure, or history of the Constitution or our legal tradition of what we believe in as ordered liberty. It's just not there. I'm not going to appoint people who think they can take it upon themselves to write things into the Constitution, nor am I going to appoint people who substitute their own personal judgment or personal policy preferences for the will of the American people as expressed through their elected representatives. And that was another way in which the Dobbs court repented, humbly repented. They quoted some previous decisions where that's what the, that was the phrase, that we are not going to substitute our own opinions for the judgment of the legislatures. Understand. The judgment of the legislatures is made with your input, not only because you elect the legislators, but because you lobby them. And because you could be called, or expert witnesses can be called to testify at, at committee hearings and bring the benefit of their knowledge to the legislative process. And they can have as many of those hearings as they want. They can take as long as they want. They can have amendments. They can go back and change things that they voted on before. This is the flexibility of the legislative process. The justices in Dobbs said that's the arena, state by state, that the conflicting arguments about the rights of the unborn needs to be hammered out. It's the wisdom of the American people, not of the nine of us sitting here in Washington on this court. See the humility. And what they also said was, we, we are not equipped to do this. We can't substitute our judgment for this. And when the legislatures pass a law, and they even went through some of the examples of the kinds of laws that could be passed, and many that have been passed, laws prohibiting barbaric procedures like dismemberment, laws protecting babies from pain. The Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act has been passed in many states, even in Congress. 
And they even said, protecting the baby in the womb from conception. The court, Dobbs, understand this, Dobbs explicitly said that if you want to protect the baby right from the beginning, we are going to give that law, and here's the words they used, a strong presumption of validity. Because there's no constitutional reason why you can't do that. See, now some people have said, well, Dobbs didn't go far enough. It should have just declared that the unborn are persons and protected by the 14th Amendment. I believe they are protected by the 14th Amendment. There's strong constitutional arguments to be made for that. They weren't ready to go that far. But brothers and sisters, they couldn't have done better as an alternative. Because they explicitly opened the door for that, for precisely for that, through what? The people and their elected representatives. When Dobbs says there is no constitutional right to abort, and this is the holding, okay, and this is how they, they word it, that there is no constitutional right to abortion, and that the abortion issue is now returned to, and here's the phrase, the people and their elected representatives understand that that means at every level of government. The Congress, the US Congress still has its role. As I mentioned in the briefs, they, they, they demanded that they be given back that role. They still have the role to issue abortion policy. And they've introduced now a 15 week bill, right? Protect the baby starting at 15 weeks. Most Americans are fine with that. That'd be a big change. Most Americans are okay with that. 72% of Americans, including Democrats, including independents, Want to, don't want to see abortion allowed after 15 weeks. They say, they say, hey, that's plenty of time to make a choice. You know, if you're pro-choice, you well, they want to make a choice. That's plenty of time. Plus, not only to mention the baby is so well developed after that. It includes the Congress. It includes the states, obviously. But you know what it also includes? City councils, local government. And that's why you see across the United States now the sanctuary cities for the unborn movement, where a city declares we're not gonna allow abortion in our city limits anymore. That's bad news for an abortion clinic that operates in those city limits, all right? What Dobbs is saying is have at it. Go for it. Do the work. Because you know what? The power in America resides with you, the people. That's the victory of Dobbs. So, Please get the brochure, and if we run out of these brochures, again, those yellow cards, just write on the card. Listen, you want to you get 100 of these for your, for your church, for your group, your pro-life group, ask for us as many as you want. And, 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 we'll get thousands, maybe just get them from us. Yeah, absolutely. Good idea, Len. Well, good idea. We'll send you, we'll stockpile them for you. Again, it's only 12 pages written in very clear language. And along with this, let me give you one website, SupremeCourtVictory.com. You will find there me and various attorneys and other experts explaining this decision, every word of it. SupremeCourtVictory.com, you'll see documentation, videos, you will, and, and, and a prayer campaign giving thanks to the Lord for this decision. So let's continue to celebrate the victory. Let's build on the victory. Thanks be to God. Okay, God bless. Mm-hmm. <laughs>